to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. I'll be reading from verse 15 to verse 29. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, you may find uh, our passage in a pew Bible uh, in front of you on page number 556. As you're turning there, I want to let you know that uh, we will be taking a break after today uh, from the book of Ecclesiastes. The next two Sundays, we will be going into the book of Luke as a way to uh, celebrate and, and proclaim the birth of Christ. Uh, but today, we are continuing our study through the book of Ecclesiastes. If, uh, if you're new with us, we have been going through this book for the last uh, eight or nine weeks, and uh, we are taking one chapter at a time, actually one half a chapter at a time, and this morning we are finishing uh, chapter 7. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15 through 29. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise men, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does, not, who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, asking God to bless the preaching of his word? Father, thank you that you reveal us your truth. In these moments, we declare that we need your spirit to understand what you have revealed to us. It is because of the darkness of our hearts that we have a tendency to misinterpret and misunderstand what you have revealed. So we pray for your Holy Spirit to guide us, to give us light. Speak to us, O Lord. We pray in the power of your Holy Spirit and for the glory of Christ. Amen. 
Well, friends, this passage of the book of Ecclesiastes is by far one of the most difficult passages in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. I would not be preaching this to you ever unless I was bound to preach the book of Ecclesiastes. There are some verses that are difficult. As you heard this, perhaps for the first time, you are wondering, what is he going to say out of these verses? How is he going to make sense of some verses that actually seem borderline unorthodox? Well, friends, I had the same impression the first time I read this passage. And uh, it, it took me some time to work through and, and try to understand what is, what is meant by these words. The, the preacher of Ecclesiastes begins this text with a sad observation in verse 15. Uh, and the observation is, in my vain life, I have seen everything. Now, I just want you to remember, this is the man who has tried a lot of things in life. He has, he has had a lot of <clears throat> resources, a lot of riches to test his heart. He's had a lot of wisdom to test his, his heart. He's had a lot of pleasure to test his life with. And here he's saying, in my vain life, I have seen everything. And here's what he observes among all the things he has tested and tried. Here's what he notices. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now, why is this a bad and sad reality? Well, because in the Old Testament, God has promised his people that if they follow God, if they follow his ways closely, God will bless them with a long life in the land that he will give them. And he was referring to the Old Testament people of God in, in Israel. Well, here... The preacher of Ecclesiastes notices the opposite reality, that there are times when the righteous die early and the wicked live long. This is a sad part of the reality we live in. And friends, this sad reality affected the human race ever since the beginning. Remember the first two brothers, Abel and Cain? Abel died way too early, prematurely, killed by his own brother, by his own wicked brother. And the wicked brother kept on living for a very long time. Or think of Jim Elliott, the young missionary who went to, to take the gospel to the Auka tribe with four of his friends, and they were killed. And they died so early. In their, in their young life. Several months ago, uh, when Marshall Canales, our, one of our previous pastoral assistants, when he came and preached here from Psalm 73, um, he shared about the death of his godly mother. Why did God take her away so early while godless people continue to live longer lives? Why do the righteous die early? And the wicked live long lives. It is possible that great Christians do not always get to enjoy the blessings of a long life. The ch children of God are often hit by cancer, by other tragedies, by diseases. They often, in some cases, die early in their lives, perhaps too early. The preacher of Ecclesiastes observes this sad part of reality. And whenever we have this, whenever we see the sad part of reality, 
close to us, whenever it hits home, there's typically two responses that people tend to fall into. There's more, but typical two ones are the following. Some people think, well, I'm not righteous enough. That's why God is hitting, the, hitting me with this disease or this illness or with this death. I'm not righteous enough. This is the, this is the, the accusation that the friends of Job brought to Job when Job was hit by, by the disease and the, the plagues that came against him. Job, you're, you're not righteous enough. Something's wrong with you. The other, the other response people tend to give is, well, if righteousness is not paying off any benefits, then why pursue it? Why go for it? Why keep pursuing it? If righteous people perish early and the wicked enjoy a long life, why bother to be righteous? Now, friends, do you know people who react in any of these two ways? Perhaps this morning you might be tempted to fall in one of these two extremes. How do we stay away from both of these dangers? Both are wrong answers to this reality of, of the righteous dying early. How do we, how do we stay away from, from these two dangers? Well, here's two points I'd like to, two broad points for the sermon. If you like taking notes, here's the first one. And then the second one will have six sub-points. I just want to give you a heads up. The first point is a pretty easy one. Uh, the, next one the second point will have six sub-points. Here's the first one. Don't use religion to manipulate God. Don't use religion to manipulate God. Friends, do you realize that some people try to use religion and pursue religion for the sake of getting their way with God? Do you understand that? Some people pursue religion for the sake of getting their way with God. Not God's way with them, but their way with God. Look at verse 16. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? This is a surprising verse. If you just look at this verse aside from the context and, and what's going on in it, um, we might conclude that uh, this verse is encouraging us that it's not good to be too religious, that it's not good to be too devoted to spiritual things. Sometimes when a young, uh, when a young man or woman um, becomes a Christian, they, they grow up in a non-Christian home and they become a Christian, the parents of this new convert, this new baby Christian now, the parents of this, Christian, of this new person uh, might actually encourage them to be weary and cautious against becoming too religious. You, you might hurt no stories about that, or you yourself might have grown in a situation like that, where the, the parents might just encourage you to say, okay, I'm not really crazy about you becoming a Christian, but, but watch out. Be careful. Don't, don't be too Christian. Don't be too religious. Is this what Ecclesiastes is saying in this verse? Is this what the preacher is giving us, this kind of warning, is be cautious? Is he encouraging us to, to be lukewarm in our religion? No, not at all. If that's what he intended to say, he would contradict the words of Jesus. Jesus, who on the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what is the preacher of Ecclesiastes saying in this verse, in verse 16? Notice the, 
the two images that are compared one next to each other. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. In seeking wisdom or in seeking righteousness, you might go about it in the wrong way. You might go after it in the wrong way. There are traps of even pursuing wisdom and righteousness. And one of the traps is, is that you fall in the trap of self-righteousness and, and seeking to be wise in your own eyes, in your own ways. Others pursue wisdom and righteousness wrongly because they pursue it on their own terms. They focus only on the things that they like in the Bible and put aside the things that they don't like. Think of the, the best example is the, the Pharisees. Were they trying to be religious? Oh, you betcha. And they tried hard. And they tried hard. They actually even made up extra rules. That's how hard they tried. But they picked and chose the things they liked from it. And they actually missed the essence of what God was pursuing with them. When the preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying, don't become too righteous. He's saying, don't become so righteous that you're becoming self-righteous. Don't become so wise that you're becoming wise in your own eyes. The problem with trying to be too righteous or too wise is that we become so obsessed with these that we become blind to our own sinfulness, to our own ongoing failures. We become self-righteous and wise in our own eyes. And whenever we fall in this trap, we are headed for destruction. Look at verse 16. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Self-righteousness and, wis and, and wisdom in our own eyes is a fruit of pride. And pride goes before destruction. Why think of religion as a means of, uh, to a higher end, a self-centered end? There are, there are religious people who try to act religiously and committed religiously for the sake of portraying themselves better in front of others, for the sake of attracting the admiration of others, for the sake of having a growing influence in, in church or in, in some sort of community. Friends, sometimes people can grow in their religious commitment in order to really advance their own selfish motives, in order to try to manipulate God to do what they want God to do for them. Friends, don't use religion simply to get a better life or a longer life, or simply to get God to do the things you want Him to do for you. That is a wrong way to pursue religion. Do not be overly religious in that kind of way. Do not be overly wise in that kind of direction. The alternative, people who say, you know, I'm not, I'm not even going in that direction. I'm going all the way to the other end. I, I'm just going to give it up. I'm, I'm just going to try to live life on my own. This is especially we see in verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, here's what this verse is not saying. This verse is not saying it is okay to be a little wicked. It's okay to indulge yourself in a little bit of deliberate sin. Friends, we are already sinners. Don't add to it. 
Don't act more on it. Don't sin intentionally. The point of this verse is to warn us that we are already sinners in our nature. So, so often we sin unintentionally. Don't add to it by sinning deliberately. Pursuing sin and evil intentionally brings our destruction. These are the, the two alternatives, the, 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 the self-righteousness and the intentional wickedness. Well, how do we steer between these two ditches? How do we pursue true wisdom and true righteousness without falling in either of these two ditches? Well, the answer is in verse 18. The answer is the fear of God. Look at verse 18. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now, the fear of God has been mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes before. It's not the first time Ecclesiastes talks about the fear of God. The fear of God means having a holy wonder, a holy awe, a holy reverence for God, that we will not treat God lightly. We will not treat God superficially. Friends, such fear of God will protect us from falling into self-righteousness on one side or into intentional wickedness on the other. Friends, have you realized that it's not only the wicked people who lack fear of God? Self-righteous people also lack the fear of God. Because for them, religion is still about them, not about God. They don't have a high view of God, but a low view of Him. They try to fit God in their categories of thinking, in their assumptions and presuppositions, in their likes, in their terms. And when we recover a biblical fear of God, we are healed from pursuing religion in a false way, in a wrong way. For the rest of this passage, the preacher of Ecclesiastes instructs us in how to pursue true wisdom in true righteousness. So here's the second point. Even though we have seen the first point, don't use religion to manipulate God. That was the first point. Here's the second point. Keep pursuing true wisdom and true righteousness. Keep pursuing true wisdom and true righteousness. Friends, just because there's a wrong way of doing it doesn't mean that it's all wrong. There is a right way of doing it based on God's ways. So keep pursuing it. Here's six uh, things, six points that we uh, see in this passage about pursuing true wisdom and righteousness. Here's, here's the first one. Here's the first sub-point. The wisdom which is rooted in the fear of God is better than the top human influence. The wisdom that is rooted in the fear of God is better, way better than the top human influence. Look at verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise, to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Do you believe? Here's what this passage says. Do you believe that it is better to have the wisdom that is rooted in the fear of God than to be among the top ten influential people in the city? who don't have that wisdom. Do you believe that? 
Actually, this, word, this verse is saying even more than that. This verse is saying the wisdom that is, that is rooted in the fear of God is better than the top, than the, the accumulation of the top ten leaders put together. Do you believe that? Ecclesiastes points us that pursuing this wisdom and righteousness, it's worth it. It is worth it. It is way more beneficial, even though the world around us would not say so. But this wisdom, pursuing this wisdom has its challenges. Pursuing such wisdom also has its challenges. Here's a, here's a second sub-point of, of this pursuit. This wisdom and righteousness is not perfect in us. This wisdom and righteousness is not perfect in us. Look at verse 20. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Even those who pursue this righteousness and wisdom, pursue it knowing that on this side of eternity, there's no one who never sins. There's no sinless perfection that we can attain on this side of heaven. When non-Christians accuse Christians that... Uh, Churches are full of hypocrites. Uh, friends, there's, some, there's a number of ways we can respond to that accusation. One of them is in this verse. One of the ways we can respond to them is, is that they're right. Even the best Christians will continue to sin and fall into sin. And even the best Christians at times will act opposite of the way they present themselves. So don't try to argue against that accusation of hypocrisy. There's a way in which we all, sooner or later, at some point in our walk with Christ, we will walk against the way we actually talk. The difference between Christians and non-Christians is not the presence or absence of sin in their lives. The difference is which side do they take when sin occurs in their lives? When we do fall in sin, which side do we take? Non-Christians continue to live in sin and are not bothered by it. But Christians, when they do sin, it bothers them. It grieves us. When the presence of sin is in our lives and it no longer bothers us, Friends, that should be a red flag. That should be a, a, a big red light going off, bulb going off, saying, watch out, your heart is growing cold. Your heart is becoming hard, hardened. Now, if you, have a, if you want a specific example of, of the presence of sin in our lives, look at verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. Oh, friends, honestly, how often we fall just in this one sin. People say things about us, against us, perhaps things we don't like, things that we don't appreciate, and how easy it is for us to sin in return. Just in what we hear, just in what we hear about people saying about us, how easy it is for our hearts to actually become revengeful, to actually think back of how we're going to get back at them, how we're, what we're going to say nasty to, to get back at them, right? Don't do it. It's so easy for us to sin even in what we hear. 
And then, of course, look at the end of verse 21. It says, your hearts know that many times you yourselves have cursed others. Well, friends, think about the time when, when someone just cuts you off in traffic. And you just can't believe it. And you just say the thing you shouldn't say. And he doesn't hear you. But you know you've said it. God hears you. You have just sinned against your neighbor. No one is without sin. We all fall into sin. We, sin, we fall short of, this, of, of the glory of God, and we, we continue to sin. But when we do sin, when Christians do sin, does it still bother us? Does it still grieve us? That's a big difference between Christians and non-Christians. A third description uh, of, of this pursuit of wisdom is that this wisdom and righteousness is pursued with humility. This wisdom and righteousness is pursued with humility. Look at verse 23. The preacher gives us a very vulnerable confession about his own search for wisdom. All things I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. Friends, what wise man is willing to confess this? Someone who's, who's wise in their own eyes can never say this. Someone who's wise in their own eyes, they think they got it. They have it. And they make sure you know they have it. Here's the wise man of Ecclesiastes. This man who devoted himself to pursue wisdom. And he realizes that true wisdom is far from him. Here's a man who pursues true wisdom with humility, knowing that he does not have the resources or the skills in himself to acquire wisdom on his own. You know why? Because it's not part of our nature. It's not part of our skill, of our ability. That wisdom belongs to God. And he gives it. He has to give it. To whomever he wills, to whomever asks for it. Look at verse 24. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? The preacher of Ecclesiastes comes to acknowledge human limitation and his own limitation. Well, friends, this is a sign of, of true wisdom, a wisdom that comes from God, a wisdom that is rooted in the fear of God, that left to our own resources, Left to our own understanding, we are not able to get it. That's why when we, when we get ready to, to hear the Word of God preached after we just read the passage, we pray. Why do we pray before a sermon? We ask God to give us a wisdom. We ask God to speak to us because we don't have the resources in us to do it. We don't have the skill in our own, in our own brain to understand it unless God reveals it to us, unless God gives us this wisdom. True wisdom rooted in the fear of God leads us to acknowledge that what God reveals about His ways is different than what we like on our own. Isaiah 55 verse 9, God tells us why we should pay close attention to His Word. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
Oh, friends, true wisdom, true righteousness is far from us in our own abilities. That's why when someone shows interest in seeking after God, one of the first things I advise them to, to do is to point them to the reading of Scripture, to start reading the Bible. That is why one of the things I'm encouraging believers in our congregation, when they want to meet together with someone who's seeking after God, the one thing to do is meet to open the Bible and read His Word, to open and understand what He says, because the wisdom that we need to pursue is not in us. It is to be revealed to us. It has been revealed to us in, his, in this book, the Scripture. Oh, friend, I wonder, I wonder if your pursuit of wisdom and righteousness is characterized by this humility of the human perspective. And is this humility leading you to seek God's wisdom in His Word? The preacher's search for wisdom continues, even though he realizes that he does not have the resources in himself. He keeps on searching. Look at verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Here's, as he presses on, here's some more things he finds out. Here's a fourth point. Pursuing this wisdom and righteousness protects us from the aggressive lure of wickedness. Pursuing this wisdom and righteousness protects us from the aggressive lure of wickedness. Look at verse 26. The preacher describes folly and madness by, by giving us a picture of a woman, personifying a woman here, or personifying wickedness and folly by giving us a picture of, of a woman. Why a woman? I don't know. Um, in the book of, of Proverbs, we see wisdom and folly. Both of them are personified through two different women. Woman wisdom, woman folly. Why? It's a literary device. There's no particular uh, intention here to speak ill of women. It's just a literary device. So here's, here's uh, wickedness presented, personified through a, a woman who is a hunter. Yes, apparently, in this book, women hunt. Um, I know in Texas, men primarily do that. Here in Ecclesiastes, this woman is also hunting. Here's her schemes. Here's what she does. Look at verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. This woman, personifying folly and wickedness, is setting up snares and nets to catch sinners. And her hands are fetters ready to bind those whom she catches. Friends, wickedness and folly are presented here as, as a hunter, a female hunter. We live in a world in which the traps of folly and wickedness are set up against us to catch us unwary, to catch us when we're negligent. Friends, we don't live in a neutral world. We live in a world that is set aggressively to catch those who are unvigilant, to catch those who just live life without any cares, assuming all is fine and good. Friends, all those who, who live that way fall into traps set up by woman folly and woman wickedness. 
And those who fall in her traps are bound up by, by her fetters. Friends, there's a great danger of falling in these traps. Finding ourselves in the fetters of darkness, unable to, to unshackle ourselves and escape on our own. We do not live in a neutral world. So, friend, awaken. Don't live superficially. Don't live unawarely. Wickedness, evil, immorality is actively set against us. But notice a gleam of hope in verse 26b. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful promise. The one who pleases God escapes this hunter. Now, the one who pleases God, this phrase shows, showed up already in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. There, uh, we, were, we read, the one who pleases God, to him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. The one who pleases God, to him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. Now, we are told, the one who pleases God, God has, gives him the ability to run away from the traps of sin, to protect themselves from the, from, the, from the nets put forth by wickedness. Friend, I wonder if you realize that when you seek to please God, you're not doing it to give God a benefit. When you, try, when you seek to please God, you are actually the one who's going to glean a great benefit. And that benefit is that God protects you from so many temptations and sins that could fall upon you and that you could fall into if you were not seeking a life that pleases God. Fred, don't think that seeking God is legalism. Don't, don't think that seeking to please God is some sort of extra rule. Ask yourself, in what areas of life are you, asking, are you seeking to please God right now? In what areas of life are you actually ignoring to please God right now? Are there any areas of your life where you're actually actively working against God, seeking and actually displeasing Him? Perhaps you've fallen into the traps of wickedness. Perhaps you're the one who's actually bound by the fetters of, of woman folly. Is there hope for you? Oh, friend, there is hope for you if you confess your sin. We tell, tell it to someone. First, tell it to God. But then tell it to another believer. Ask him or her to, to help you get out of this trap of sin that you're in. Confess your sin to one another, says the Bible. Enlist the help of other Christians who would come alongside you and help you because we are blindsided by our own sinfulness. And we can oftentimes fall into it without realizing. And it is good to be surrounded by other fellow believers who would speak the truth to our hearts, who would give us godly advice from God's Word and, and point us in the right direction in pursuing the wisdom and righteousness of God. Oh, friends, if, if you are the one caught in the fetters of evil and wickedness, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Come and, come and talk to me. I'd love to do so. You know, the next thing the preacher gives, the fifth sub-point in this pursuit of righteousness and wisdom, of true righteousness and true wisdom, is this, no one is upright. Everyone 
needs this wisdom and righteousness. No one can stand this morning here, hear this, this encouragement to pursue wisdom and righteousness and say, you know what, I don't need it. I'm fine. Look at verse 28. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not. Friends, this is a puzzling picture. Again, is this, is this a way to, to say that men are, women, are better than women? Absolutely not. This is a, a Hebrew poetry. In Hebrew poetry, one of the things that often happens is two lines are put one next to each other, and the first line states a case, and the next line progresses, makes a progression of thought. Here's what the first line means. One man among a thousand I found. Does he, is he saying that he found one man amongst, amongst a thousand? Well, that's one way if you didn't realize that this is a figure of speech. Let me give you an example of a figure of speech that uses that kind of logic. Imagine a young man is trying to date this girl on campus. He's trying to ask her out on a date. And he goes and asks her, hey, what is the chance that you and I could get together uh, for a date? And she would respond, one in a thousand. Now, what is she saying? If you're dumb and dumber, uh, you think there is a chance, right? <laughs> but that's not what he's saying. Or she's, say she's really saying, there's no chance. There really is no chance. One man in a thousand I found. No one is righteous. No one is righteous. And to, to make the same point even further, he's looking at another group of people, another thousand, this time women. There he can't find even one. This is a progression of thought, saying no one is upright, not even one. Why is this important for us to know in pursuing righteousness and wisdom? It reminds us of the universal need for pursuing righteousness. Every one of us needs this. Not one of us is outside of this need. Friend, I wonder if you realize that you're part of this category. Some people real think and, and, and imagine, well, since, since I haven't robbed any bank, since I haven't cheated on my spouse, I'm a good person. I, I'm fine. You don't understand. I'm living a fine life. Friends, that is not what the Bible says about any of us, you included. The Bible says that no one is upright. Humanity has fallen deep into sin, and this fall is universal. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, all of us need to pursue God's righteousness and wisdom. But here's the seventh thing, or the sixth thing that... Um, that this passage is saying about the pursuit of wisdom and righteousness, man is responsible for his corruption. Man is responsible for his corruption. God is not to be blamed for our situation. Look at verse 29. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man upright. But they have sought out many schemes. How did he know? Was he there at the moment of creation? He wasn't. But God revealed it to him. At the beginning of creation, God made man, Adam and Eve, upright. 
We should not blame God for our wickedness. We cannot say, well, this is how God made me to be. Our wickedness is not to be blamed on God. Adam and Eve sought wisdom, but sought it in the wrong way. Remember when Adam and Eve fell, when the serpent tempted Eve? In Genesis 3, verse 6, we read the following. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. In the desire to be wise, she disobeyed God. She pursued a wisdom that was not rooted in the fear of God. She pursued a wisdom that actually was rooted in a heart that rebelled against God, against her Maker. Oh, friends, even today, we live in a time when we're lured by the world with a wisdom that is contrary to God's revelation. It lures us to act against God, to ignore His ways, and such lures come garbed and clothed in the dress of wisdom, in the dress of freedom, in the dress of independence. But learn from Adam and Eve. Such wisdom that makes you rebel against God leads us to death and destruction. But in the gospel, in the gospel, there's a good news. In the gospel, which is a good news of salvation, God reveals to us true wisdom and true righteousness. When God sent Christ to be born on earth, to live that perfect life, that righteous life that had no sin, not even one. When Christ sent him, when God sent him to live this perfect life, Christ was killed early. To human standards, way too early. He is the righteous who died, and in his place, the wicked kept on living longer. Remember Barabbas? But his death, the death of the righteous in the place of the unrighteous, happened so that the unrighteous may be granted the right to be righteous again through the penalty of Christ. Oh, friends, this is a good news of salvation. This is the wisdom of God. And that is why when, when Paul describes Christ in the New Testament, he is not simply saying Christ has the wisdom of God. No, he is saying Christ is the wisdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says a key became to us wisdom from God. Jesus is not only having the wisdom of God, Jesus is the wisdom of God for us. Oh, friend, as we are encouraged to pursue the true wisdom and the true righteousness, we are called to pursue Christ. When Ecclesiastes was written, the picture of Christ was just a shadow moving forward. But now that Christ has appeared, now that He has been born, now that He has lived the perfect life, the righteous life, the sinless life, and He has died, for the unrighteous. Now we are called to pursue this wisdom and to pursue this righteousness. And look at, look at what, what 1 Corinthians 30 says, is that He is the wisdom from God for us. 
He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. And He's our redemption. The wisdom of Christ, the wisdom which Christ is, is a wisdom that sanctifies, is a wisdom that redeems, is a wisdom that is righteous. It is only through Him, it is only in Christ that we can have and pursue this righteousness. Oh, friend, I wonder, is this the righteousness you are pursuing? Is this the wisdom you are pursuing? Do you realize that when you are following Christ, you are following His wisdom and His righteousness? And if this is not you this morning, I encourage you, I plead with you, turn to Christ today. Respond to Him by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ for your salvation. And He will become the wisdom of God for you, for those who He redeems. Seek this true wisdom and righteousness. He is not far from any of us if we respond to Him and desire to follow Him earnestly.